I don't have a sign. I don't know what to do. It doesn't seem right to use pastors. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so, I guess it was a number of weeks ago. I was sitting and listening to Pastor teach. Um, I think it was a Sunday morning, and he said something that kind of caught my attention. Do you guys do that? It's like you, he, he says something, and you're like you latch on to it, and then you write it down. Well, what he said was that there was someone, and I can't even remember who it was, was in unity with God, which allowed the supernatural to flow through that person. And there was something about that that really caught my attention. And I thought, huh, that makes a lot of sense, but I want to know more about it. And so it posed a question in my mind, what can we accomplish when we are in unity with God? So I decided I wanted to study that some more. And so I've been doing that over the last few weeks. And so I thought that tonight we would kind of look at that and think about, well, what does it mean when we're in unity with God and what can we accomplish? How, what's the difference when we're in unity and when we're not in unity? So to start, I'm going to talk about the definition of unity, which I think we kind of need to know in order to talk about it. But the definition is a state of being united or joined as a whole, a oneness of mind or agreement. That's what it means to be in unity. Being uni excuse me, united or joined as a whole, a oneness of mind or agreement. And to be in unison means to be in perfect agreement. And we know that the Trinity is an example of that, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always in unison. They are always oneness of mind or agreement. So that's an example that we're given. Um, I happen to really, really like horses. And I like to watch horse races. Like, I always try to watch the Kentucky Derby. And one of the things that always amazes me is the oneness that is achieved with a really good jockey and a horse. It's, it's like they're working in unison toward a goal. A really good jockey does that. And so I think that has always been something <clears throat> that I wonder how they achieve that. But as believers, we have a much more important role in maintaining unity with God. And actually, the Bible talks about three different types of unity that we can be in. And so I'm going to talk about those first. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, oh, and by the way, I'm doing something a little different tonight with the Bible. Every verse that I use is going to be something you are really familiar with. So I decided that tonight I'm only going to talk about it out of the Passion. So if you don't have the Passion Translation, I'm sorry, um, you can just listen. <clears throat> if you have the Passion Translation, you can follow along. But I decided that because we're so familiar with it out of the other translations, that this brings a little bit of a different perspective sometimes. So that's what I decided to do tonight. So in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, now, if anyone is enfolded into Christ, he has become an entirely new person. All that has related to the old order has vanished. Behold, everything is fresh and new. I like that. <clears throat> so this is like we're all in Christ just as he is in us, right? So we are new people. The old is gone. 
So that is a type of unity. He's in us, we're in him. That is a unity that every single believer has. There's nothing that you can do to separate that. But we're also called to be in unity in the church. And Ephesians 4 talks about that. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Hmm, is that right? 4, 1 through 6. As a prisoner of the Lord, I plead with you to walk holy in a way that is suitable to your high rank, given to you in your divine calling. That's pretty cool. We get a high rank. With tender humility and quiet patience, always demonstrate gentleness and generous love toward one another, especially toward those who may try your patience. Be faithful to guard the sweet harmony of the Holy Spirit among you in the bonds of peace, being one body and one spirit, as you were all called into the same glorious hope of divine destiny. Now, I think that is a lovely way of basically saying you're supposed to be in unity in the church. You know? Be faithful to guard the sweet harmony of the Holy Spirit among you in the bonds of peace. I mean, what happens when you have a church where there's not unity? You get division, you get strife, you get all sorts of negative things, right? So we're called to be in unity in the church. But we're also called to be in unity individually. And this is primarily what I'm going to talk about tonight. But if you go to John 17, um, looking in verse 23. You live fully in me, and now I live fully in them. This is Jesus talking about God. So that they will experience perfect unity. And the world will be convinced that you have sent me, for they will see that you love each one of them with the same passionate love that you have for me. I like that. So they will experience perfect unity. Each one of us can do that. We can be in unity with God, and with Jesus, and with Holy Spirit. So we're actually called to be in union with God individually. But that doesn't mean that we're always in unity with him, does it? Stuff happens, right? I mean, you backslide. You know, you might just kind of take a little break from God for a while, which means you're not at all in unity with him. Um, go off on your own. Maybe God has told you to do something. Do you think you can do it better? You know, you have a better idea. We've all done that sort of stuff, right? And then you have to go around the mountain again and again because you messed up. Yeah. Um, sometimes there's a dry season in prayer. And when that happens, we're not as close to God as we need to be. That doesn't mean we're separated from him because that's not going to happen, right? It just, it just means that at that moment, we're not, we're not hearing him as well. We are not allowing him to lead us in the way we should. We're not really in unity with him the way we should be. But when we're in unity with God, there are some real benefits. I mean, there's fulfillment, 
right? It can bring about opportunities. How many of us have missed opportunities because we weren't actually in unity with God at that time? Our, our opportunities got delayed. Maybe they never came back around again. But we definitely, when we're in unison with God, it sets up a supernatural flow in our lives. Just like Pastor said that morning, he said that it allowed the supernatural to flow through that particular person. And that flow allows us to be where we should, spiritually and also physically. Because when we're in unity with God and you ask him to direct your path, do you think he's going to do it? Absolutely. And that means you're going to be in the right place at the right time. But if you're not in unity with him, you're not going to be in the right place at the right time. So physically even, it can, it can help us. So to study about this, we're going to be talking about the lives of some people in the early church. And I don't know about you, but I always find Acts so motivating. It's so incredible what was going on at the beginning of the church. So tonight, we're going to start with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And that is, starts in Acts 8. So we're going to be looking at some people here and how they were in unity with God. Okay, so just to give some background, um, Peter and John had been, you know, talk, telling people about God. They returned to Jerusalem. And then in verse 26, it says, The Lord's angel said to Philip, which I think is pretty cool. If the Lord's angel says something to you, I guess you're going to listen. Now go south from Jerusalem on the desert road to Gaza. And he left immediately on his assignment. I like that. Philip didn't waste any time. Along the way, he encountered an Ethiopian who believed in the God of the Jews, who was the minister of finance for Candace, queen of Ethiopia. He was on his way home from worshiping God in Jerusalem. As he rode along in his chariot, he was reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go and walk alongside the chariot. So Philip ran to catch up. So I don't know how fast the chariot was going, but Philip apparently caught up to it. As he drew closer, he overheard the man reading from the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. And Philip asked him, Sir, do you understand what you're reading? The man answered, How can I possibly make sense of this without someone explaining it to me? So he invited Philip up into his chariot to sit with him. And I love that. It's like, you know, Philip, he's just like running alongside and he's like, hey, dude, you understand what you're reading there? And the guy's like, no, I don't, not at all. Hop in, explain it to me. <laughs> the portion from Isaiah he was reading was this. He was led away to the slaughter like a lamb to be offered. He was like a lamb that is silent before those who sheared him. He never even opened his mouth. In his lowliness, justice was stripped away from him. And who could fully express his struggles? for his life was taken from the earth. And we know that this is talking about Jesus. But the Ethiopian Jew did not, because he didn't know about Jesus. And the Ethiopian said to Philip, please, can you tell me who the prophet is speaking of? Is it himself or another man? Philip started with this passage and shared with him the wonderful message of Jesus. As they were traveling down the road, the man said, Look, there's a pool of water. Why don't I get baptized now? I like it. 
He wasn't wasting any time. And Philip replied, if you believe with your heart, I will baptize you. And the man answered, I believe Jesus is the anointed one, the Son of God. The Ethiopian stopped his chariot. They went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, Philip was suddenly snatched up by the Spirit of the Lord and instantly carried away to the city of Ashdod, this is what that calls it, where he reappeared preaching the gospel in that city. The man never saw Philip again. He returned to Ethiopia full of great joy. Philip, however, traveled on to all the towns of that region, bringing in the good news until he arrived at Caesarea. So, okay, let's talk about this. Philip was in unity with God. Otherwise, he wouldn't have gotten the message that he needed to go catch up to this particular dude, right? I mean, this guy was probably out in the middle of nowhere. And so Philip goes, he finds him, and he starts talking to him. Now, the Ethiopian was Jewish. And in my mind, I always wondered, how is he Jewish? He's from Ethiopia. So I went looking on that. And actually, the Jews there trace, are traced back to the Jewish migration from Egypt when Moses led them out. Apparently, along the way, they converted some people. And so they became Jewish. Now, another thing about this Ethiopian, the journey from Egypt to Israel was more than 1,500 miles. The average chariot went 20 to 25 miles a day. So I'm not the best at math, but I'm thinking that's more than 70 days on the road, right? Just about. And not only that, if he really was a eunuch, they didn't even let him in the temple when he got there. He had to worship at a gate. Now, do you think this man loved God? Yeah. Otherwise, why would he do that? Why would he travel that far to, if he couldn't even get into the temple? Because in Deuteronomy, it says the eunuchs can't go inside. That was just part of the, the law. So he obviously wanted to know more. He wanted to worship God. He was reading from the scrolls as he was traveling but he couldn't understand what he was reading. Now, for how many of you was it difficult, more difficult to understand the Bible before you got the Holy Ghost? That really opens up a lot of understanding for us, doesn't it? Well, he didn't know anything about that. He didn't even know anything about Jesus. So Philip happened to be in the right place at the right time. He ran, he caught up with the man, and he led him to Jesus and baptized him. And then Philip disappeared. It's always amazed me that it doesn't say that the Ethiopian was shocked or amazed. It, it doesn't say that at all. It just says he never saw him again, and he, he returned to Ethiopia full of great joy. Like, you just saw an amazing thing happen, and it doesn't record anything about that, right? So if, you know, depending on where he was translated to, if it was Caesarea or Azotus, it was at least 15 miles away. Think about how long it would have taken him to walk. There must have been something he had to get to in that particular place for God to translate him like that. Now, the Ethiopian continued on his way, and church documents as early as AD 180 actually mentioned this man as evangelizing his homeland. 
and Ethiopia became a Christian nation. Right now, Ethiopia is two-thirds Christian and one-third Muslim. So they have a history of Christianity. And many people say it goes back to this Ethiopian Jew. Isn't that cool? Now, because Philip was in unity with the Spirit, he led this man to Jesus, which led to the spread of the gospel in Africa. Pretty cool. So unity to, with God leads us to opportunities. On his own, Philip wouldn't have known to do that, right? It was because he was in unity with God that he heard what he was supposed to do, and he went and did it. And then it, it, it led to this amazing display of power when Philip was translated. And, you know, to this day, we still hear sometimes about people being translated or people who have visited places and don't remember doing it. I think we've heard stories about David Hogan, um, that happening with him. So, yeah. So that was an amazing thing where Philip was so in unison with God that he went where he was told to go, he did what he was told to do, and this man then took the gospel to an entirely different place. Pretty cool. So now let's look at Peter and Cornelius. I'm only going to read part of this because this is kind of a long story. But if you go over just to Acts 10, you just have to flip over just a little bit. At that time, there was a Roman military officer, Cornelius, who was in charge of 100 men stationed in Caesarea. Ah, we just heard about Caesarea, right? Wasn't Philip going to Caesarea? He was the captain of an Italian regiment, a devout man of extraordinary character who worshipped God and prayed regularly together with his family. That's pretty cool. He also had a heart for the poor and gave generously to help them. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had an open vision and saw the angel of God appear right in front of him calling his name, Cornelius. Startled, he was overcome with fear by the sight of the angel. He asked, what do you want, Lord? The angel said, all of your prayers and your generosity to the poor have ascended before God as an eternal offering. Wow. So God basically said, you're a giver, right? You're a giver. And I recognize that. And I'm going to use you for something here. Send some men to Joppa at once. Have them find a man named Simon the Rock who is staying as a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. After the angel left, Cornelius called for two of his servants and a trusted godly soldier who was his personal attache. He explained to them everything that had just happened and sent them off to Joppa. Well, the next day, around noon, as Cornelius's men were approaching Joppa, which is where Peter was, Peter went up to the flat roof of the house to pray. He was hungry and wanted to eat. But while lunch was being prepared, he fell into a trance and entered into another realm. As the heavenly realm opened up, he saw something resembling a large linen tablecloth that descended from above, being let down to the earth by its four corners. As it floated down, he saw that it held many kinds of four-footed animals, reptiles, and wild birds. A voice said to him, Peter, go and prepare them to be eaten. Peter replied, 
there's no way I could do that, Lord, for I've never eaten anything forbidden or impure according to our Jewish laws. I like this. God is showing him something. And Peter's like, no, I can't do that. The voice spoke again. Nothing is unclean if God declares it to be clean. The vision was repeated three times. Then suddenly the linen sheet was snatched back up into heaven. So, Peter is a little confused about what he's just seen, right? Because it violates the Jewish laws that he was brought up to observe, which said there are certain things you can eat and some things you cannot. And God had just shown him all these things you can eat. And then he said, nothing is unclean if God declares it to be clean. Okay. So, meanwhile, Cornelius' men were downstairs. And I'm going to kind of skip some of that. And it, it says, as Peter was in deep thought, trying to interpret the vision, the Spirit said to him, this is verse 19, 20, go downstairs now, for three men are looking for you. Don't hesitate to go with them, because I have sent them. Here again, we see somebody who is in unity with God. God is speaking to them, just giving them directions, right? Peter went downstairs to the men and said, I believe I'm the one you're looking for. What brings you here? And so they explained that Cornelius had sent them. So he says, okay, well, we'll go tomorrow. And so um, the next day they headed off for a meeting with Cornelius. So if we pick up at 27. So he gets there. They talked together and then went inside where Peter found a large gathering waiting to hear his words. And Peter said to them, You all know it is against the Jewish laws for me to associate with or even visit the home of one who is not a Jew. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? You couldn't hang out with people who were not of your own faith. Yet God has shown me that I should never view anyone as inferior or ritually unclean. So when you sit for me, I came without any objection. Now may I ask why you sent for me? And so Cornelius tells him, he says, four days ago I was fasting and praying here in my home at this very hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, when a man in glistening clothing suddenly appeared in front of my eyes. He said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers. Your generosity to the poor has been recorded and remembered in God's presence. However, you must send for a man named Simon the Rock who is staying in Joppa as a guest of Simon the Tanner. So I immediately sent my men to bring you here, and you were kind enough to come. And now we are all of us in God's presence, anxious to hear the message that God has put into your heart to share with us. Not putting Peter on the spot at all, right? It's like, you brought something, we want to hear it. And Peter said, now I know for certain that God doesn't show favoritism with people, but treats everyone on the same basis. It makes no difference what race of people one belongs to. If they show deep reverence for God and are committed to doing what's right, they are acceptable before Him. God sent His word to the Jewish people first, announcing the wonderful news of hope and peace through Jesus, the Anointed One, the Lord of all. You are well aware of all that began in Galilee and spread throughout the land of Israel immediately after John preached his message of baptism. And so he goes on and he talks about those things. 
while, I'm picking up on verse 44. While Peter was speaking, the Holy Spirit cascaded, I like that word, cascaded over all those listening to his message. The Jewish brothers who had accompanied, accompanied Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on people who weren't Jews. For they heard them speaking in supernaturally given languages and passionately praising God. And Peter said, how could anyone object to these people being baptized? For they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he instructed them to be baptized in the power of the name of Jesus, the anointed one. So what we have here was totally amazing to the Jewish people because until that point, they thought Jesus was there just for them. Right? They didn't understand that Gentiles could actually be saved, that they could believe in Jesus, that God would include somebody who's not Jewish. This was a pivotal moment in the church because God showed him that if he declares it clean, then it is clean, right? And in this case, God spoke to two men, one through an angelic appearance and the other through visions. And you know, God still speaks to people who are in unity with him. We have visions, we have dreams, some people hear a direct voice. Probably a lot of people in this room have had those things in their own lives. I remember reading that in 1952, um, Dima Shikarian, who founded the Full Gospel Businessmen's Group, he had an open vision that showed him what he was going to do. And it led to one of the largest men's groups in the entire world. So God still speaks to us this way. He shows us visions. He, he gives us dreams. And so he continues to speak to us. And so if you look at the first thing we talked about with Philip and the Ethiopian Jew, and you combine it with this, what we see is that not only can black people be a part of the church, but so can Gentiles. So the church now has Gentiles, Jews, and black people in it. And God is saying, I love them all. It doesn't matter who they are or where they come from. I love all of them and they can all have a relationship with me, which I think is very cool. Now, the last one we're going to look at is actually Saul and his conversion. And you have to go back to chapter 9 for this one. These are, these are actually all accounted one after the other. And the account of Saul is in the middle. But I saved Saul for last because he was, he was the one in the three stories who was actually not in unity with God. Okay? Because as a Pharisee, he thought he was doing God's will, but he was actually persecuting the church. So uh, if you look at Acts 9, we're going to start in verse 1. During those days, Saul, full of angry threats and rage, yeah, not really in unity with God if you're full of angry threats and rage, wanted to murder the disciples of the Lord Jesus. So he went to the high priest and requested a letter of authorization he could take to the Jewish leaders in Damascus, requesting their cooperation in finding and arresting any who were followers of the way. 
Saul wanted to capture all the believers he found, both the men and women, and drag them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. So he obtained the authorization and left for Damascus. So basically, the, the Jewish officials gave him the authority to do that. And we know that he set out for Damascus, and he had a little encounter along the way. Just outside the city, a brilliant light flashing from heaven suddenly exploded all around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a booming voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The men accompanying Saul were stunned and speechless, for they heard a heavenly voice but could see no one. Saul replied, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the victorious, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city where you will be told what you are to do. Saul stood to his feet, and even through, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. He was blind. So the men had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. And for three days he didn't eat or drink, and he couldn't see a thing. Okay? And we know that there was a believer living there named Ananias, and the Lord told him to go to Saul. And Ananias says, I love you, Lord, but really? Because isn't this the one who's like dragging us away? But he saw in a supernatural vision, Paul did, that a man named Ananias was going to come and lay hands on him and restore his sight. So, in verse 15, he's talking to Ananias, and he said, The Lord Yahweh answered him, Arise and go. I have chosen this man, meaning Saul, to be my special messenger. My special messenger. He will be brought before kings, before many nations, and before the Jewish people to give them the revelation of who I am. And I will show him how much he is destined to suffer because of his passion for me. So Ananias left the house, I'm sorry, left and found the house where Saul was staying. He went inside, laid hands on him, and said, Saul, my brother, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me to pray for you so that you might see again and be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. All at once, the crusty substance that was over Saul's eyes disappeared, and he could see perfectly. Immediately, he got up and was baptized. Once again, he didn't waste any time. After eating a meal, his strength returned. Within the hour, he was in the synagogues preaching about Jesus and proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. I just, in my mind, I can just picture people going, who? Wait, wait, isn't that Saul? Wasn't he coming here to persecute the Jesus believers? Huh, okay. So, Saul was not in unity with God in the beginning. He had to be corrected, yes. right? So God had to get his attention, and it caused a lasting change in Saul's life. He obviously became Paul. God sometimes has to correct us when we're not in unity with him, right? Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's usually it's decisions that we've made, and they play out. And sometimes we make bad decisions. So, yeah. So how does this relate to us? Okay, first of all, these three converts to Jesus, the Ethiopian Jew, the Gentile Cornelius, Saul, a Pharisee, led to the church being united. It had not been before. 
You know, there was a lot of questioning about well, who are the apostles and who's in charge. And then God says, hey, look, I love all these people too. So the church started growing and we saw a lot of different kinds of people actually coming into the church. I mean, you think about it, if it had stayed as Jewish people, we wouldn't be sitting here today. Right? We wouldn't be. Um, it pushed the church forward into new areas and it expanded the church. And so you think, okay, well, that was good for them. Awesome. Great. It got the church going. How does this relate to me? Well, let's think about distractions. I think that distractions is one of the most effective ploys that the devil has for us. Because if he can distract you, he can keep your eyes off of Jesus. He can keep your eyes off of being in unity with God. You know, I don't have time. We're all busy. You know, I think we all fight that, that battle, right? You know, we're all busy. We've got stuff to do. It's hard to find time to pray. Distractions. Um, but Pastor said that we can't build on what we don't have. Prayer gets us into unity with God. You have to find time to pray. If you don't find time to pray, you can't be in unity with him. You won't know his thoughts. You won't know his, his desires for you. You won't know where you're supposed to be. He won't be able to tell you, go over here, do this. Go over here, do this. You need to talk to this person. I mean, sometimes when I'm praying, people's faces pop up in my prayer. And so I pray for those people because I figure God must want me to. So I do that. But, you know, if you're not praying, then you're not going to be in unity with him and you're not going to understand what it is he wants you to do. And then you're not going to have those opportunities, right? Um, and Pastor made a comment the other day that God didn't want us to stay at the same level because he's always moving. You know, if we're, if we're okay, so you're in unity with God here, and then God moves up here. If you're distracted, you don't even notice he moved, right? And so he's moving up here and he's moving up here and you're still hanging out down here. And it's like, whoa, I got left behind somehow. It's because you got distracted. So you have to, you have to make the time and the effort to stay in unity with him. And I thought about this because I went to kind of a rural county school in good old Walker County. And so we used to have this thing called field day in the spring every year. And I see somebody shaking her head. Yeah, you remember those things. And they would like give you burlap bags. You'd have, you know, races and see who could go the fastest and then the bags and stuff. But my least favorite activity of all was the three-legged race. Because I'm not the tallest person in the world. And it seemed like I always got paired up with somebody who was taller than me, which meant like, you know, their leg went up here. And, you know, when those two legs are bound together, you have to develop a system so that you don't fall down because if that person's leg is longer, you're going to have to work harder to stay with them, right? And so then they expect you to run to the end of, like, the football field, and half the time we would fall because we weren't in unity. So if we had time to practice, though, you could work out a, basically a routine you know, so that you could count 
and know when to take that step with the legs that were bound together. And that provided some unity so that maybe you could at least make it to the finish line. So, but God can't guide us if we're not working with him. Does that make sense? Okay. But if we yield ourselves to him, there are some really good benefits. I mean, just in the same way that if you went fast enough on the three-legged race, you might actually win a ribbon or something. What God has for us is a whole lot better than a ribbon. So um, if you go to Ephesians 4, let's look at just a, a little bit of some of the benefits, because Pastor's right, that clock really goes fast. Okay, Ephesians 4, verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, I plead with you to walk holy in a way that is suitable to your high rank given to you in your divine calling. I think I read this one earlier. This is a, this is a repeat. Um, with tender humility and quiet patience, always demonstrate gentleness and generous love toward one another, especially toward those who may try your patience. And so if you, um, if you get down to verse 5, it says, For the Lord God is one, and so are we. For we share in one faith, one baptism, and one Father. And He is the perfect Father who leads us all, works through us all, and lives in us all. That's pretty awesome. He is the perfect Father who leads us all. He's going to lead all of us if we're in unity with Him. Who works through us all. He's going to be working in our lives and he lives in us all, there's that unity. I like that. Um, and in 1 Corinthians, kind of going backwards here. First Corinthians 1. Verse 10. I urge you, my brothers and sisters, for the sake of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to agree to live in unity with one another and put to rest any division that attempts to tear you apart. Be restored as one united body living in perfect harmony. Form consistent choreography among yourselves, having a common perspective with shared values. Now, Paul was writing to the Corinthians because they weren't exactly living up to that at the time, right? So he said, live in unity with one another and put to rest any division that attempts to tear you apart. And we have seen this with a lot of churches where they do have division and it often leads to a split church. It leads to a lot of people leaving. So there are definite benefits to actually being united in the church. Um, 2 Corinthians 2.14. Oh, I'm still in first. Okay. 2.14. God always makes his grace visible in Christ, who includes us as partners in his endless triumph. We're partners. I like that. I am a, I am a co-laborer with Jesus. That's cool. 
through our yielded lives, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere we go. Now, I like that too, because he says, if we yield ourselves to God, which basically means being unity with him, that he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere we go. Wherever we go, people will know. We're Christians, right? They will see Jesus. It's true that we are skin and bone Jesus. We are the only Jesus that most people will see. So that is one of the benefits of being um, in unity with him. We're going to run back to John. I think I started there. John 17. John 17 has a lot of good stuff in it. But if we start in verse 11, this is Jesus talking. He said, Holy Father, I'm about to leave this world to return and be with you. But my disciples will remain here so that I ask that by the power of your name protect each one that you have given me and watch over them so that they will be united as one even as we are one. So he actually prayed that believers would be united. And if you flip over real quick to verse 20, it's kind of like it picks up from that particular verse in 20, and it says, and I ask not only for these disciples, which is what he said in verse 11, but also for those who will one day believe in me through their message. I pray for them all to be joined together as one, even as you and I, Father, are joined together as one. I pray for them to become one with us so that the world will recognize that you sent me. So he prayed for his disciples who were right there with him, but then he prayed for all those who will one day believe in me through their message. That's us. And those are people we influence too. You know, it's like we talk to people and we help them to understand who Jesus is and then they become part of the family and those prayers that Jesus prayed are still working over us today. So being one with God, being uni in unison with him is extremely important. So I've got to finish up here. Uh, Chris Vallotton is one of the, um, the pastors at Bethel. And he said, the implication is that when people see us, they have seen the Father. If they don't believe us on account of our words, they should believe us on account of our works. Because we are to do greater works than Jesus did. That is the kind of unity that will cause the world to know that the kingdom of God has come near them. You can't do greater works than Jesus if you're not in unity with God. And those are the things that testify to the world. The testimonies that we share with each other, you should be telling them to other people too. Let them know God is working in our lives because for a lot of people, they don't. They, they don't know that God is still around. They don't believe in anything. So when they see that God works through us, it's a great testimony for them. So if you go back to my original thing, what can we accomplish when we're in unity with God? Well, there's that fulfillment. There's the opportunities. But really, 
what it boils down to is we push the church forward. You know, there were those early people in Acts who got the church going, but it's up to us to push it and to keep it moving, right? Because we're co-laborers with Jesus. You think he wants us just to sit here and not do anything? No, they have, they have stuff they want us to do. We can't do that if we don't know how, what it is because we're not in unity with them. So unity is central to what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. So I urge you to try to get rid of the distractions, focus more on God, being in unity with Him, and then let's really see what we can accomplish if we're in unity with God. I look forward to seeing what you guys are going to do because you're all influencing people every day, and it's pretty awesome. So, all right, well, let's just pray. Father, I just thank you that you have opportunities for us every day. And I pray that everybody, the people here, the people online, Lord, I just pray that they allow you to direct their steps every day so that we are where we're supposed to be, that we're doing what we're supposed to do, and we are influencing the people we're supposed to influence. And I just thank you, Father, that we are stamping out distraction and we are returning our focus to Jesus that we keep our eyes on you all the time because that's how we move forward personally and it's how the church moves forward into the future and I just give you the glory and the honor for it in Jesus name Amen, Amen. Thank you all <laughs>